Turn with me this morning as we continue our uh, series to the book of Romans. We come to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. We've been in the midst of a long uh, section in which uh, Paul has been dealing with the topic of sin and God's judgment against sin, and we really come to the sort of the conclusion of that section this morning in Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. And uh, before I read, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, I pray, O Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. I pray that you give us understanding of our hearts and opened eyes and ears. I pray that you would speak to us, O Lord, in just the way that you know we need to hear. I pray, O Lord, that my words this morning would be faithful to the message of this text and that your spirit would cultivate our hearts, O Lord, to receive it. May it bear abundant fruit as it's planted deep in us for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word from Romans 3, 9 to 20. The Apostle Paul says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews, and by the way, I'm going to stop the pause there because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not addressing this in the message. So uh, in verse 1, if you remember from last week, Paul says, what advantage is there in being a Jew? And he says, much in every way. Now in verse 9, what, what should we conclude? Do we have an advantage? And he says, not at all. Why is Paul contradicting himself? No, he's not. Uh, Paul is talking here about a different kind of advantage, any saving advantage, any advantage in terms of our ability to attain the righteousness that we need. So it says, not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. You may be seated. In a well-known story by Hans Christian Andersen, uh, two swindlers offered to provide a vain emperor with some new clothes. Posing as weavers, they say they will 
weave the emperor a rare and costly garment. And in fact, they say this is a special kind of garment that is only visible to those who are wise and pure in hearts. To everybody else, it is invisible. The delighted emperor hires them, and the two swindlers set up looms where they pretend to be weaving him this special garment. And when their work is supposedly finished, the emperor goes in to, to check on uh, this, his, his uh, new clothes, and, and of course, he sees nothing at all. But he knows that the supposed clothes are only visible to those who are wise and pure in heart, and he doesn't want to be exposed as one who is unwise and impure in heart, and so he exclaims how beautiful and wonderful and fantastic these new clothes really are. And he holds a grand parade to show off his new clothes. And he stands before the two swindlers as they pretend to dress him in his costly garment. And then he goes out in a great procession before the whole city. And the townsfolk go along with this pretense, also not wanting to be exposed as those who are unwise and impure in heart. But then in a moment of quietness, a child points out the plain and obvious truth, and the child shouts out, The emperor has no clothes. And with those words, the grand delusion is stripped away, and everyone realizes that they have been fooled. That story paints a picture of the human condition. As so many are going through life like that emperor, thinking they are clothed with garments of basic goodness and, and righteousness, thinking that they are okay just as they are to stand before God, and they don't realize they are naked. In our text this morning, like that little boy, the Apostle Paul exposes our delusion. And he shows us our real condition. He unveils the reality of our nakedness. Now, just to give you a little refresher of, of where we've been. Uh, so at this point in Paul's letter, he has shown us in chapter 1 the, the sinfulness of the Gentiles and how, they, and how God's wrath is being revealed against them. And just as the Jews are celebrating that, Paul turns the tables on them in chapter 2, and so he follows it up in chapter 2 by showing the sinfulness of the Jews and how they too are under God's wrath because of their sin. And now in chapter 3, Paul brings his argument about human sin to this sort of climactic and, and condemning conclusion. And he says that all of humanity is under the power of sin in verse 9. And to be under the power of sin, that expression means to be governed by sin. It, it is to be living under its authority, to have hearts and wills and lives that are shaped by its rule over us. It is a strong expression. Our fundamental condition as humans is a condition of slavery to sin. We all stand as naked sinners before a holy God. And to make this point, to show us our real condition as sinners, Paul puts together a whole string of Old Testament quotations in verses 10 through 18, which is the bulk of this text. He quotes seven passages in these nine verses. And in this string of Old Testament quotations, he is showing us three main features of our sinful condition. 
So we see first that our sinful condition is universal in scope. Notice the language that Paul uses in verses 10 to 12. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Seven times in these three verses, Paul uses this extreme universal language. Every single human is sinful without exception. Without God's gracious initiative, there is no one who is righteous. There's no one who truly understands the things of God. There's no one who truly even wants to know God. There's no one who does good. All have turned away and live as rebels against him. What Paul is saying is that in our in our standing with God, the human condition is one in which we are all on the outs. There is not a single one who could or would be declared righteous in the eyes of God. Tim Keller has uh, illustrated this point, illustrated our our sinful condition by by, uh, comparing it to to swimming or to to swimmers. He uh, invites us to imagine uh, three people who are trying to swim from Hawaii to Japan. And... uh, the first person, he says, cannot swim at all, has never learned how to swim, can't swim at all. And so that person uh, drowns immediately after, the, 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 after she gets into water that is too deep for her to stand. The second person, he says, is a, is a weak swimmer. He at least knows a little bit how to do it, but is a very weak swimmer. And that person flounders for about you know, 60 feet out into the water, and then she too drowns. But the third swimmer, he says, is a championship Swimmer who's been training and, and swimming for almost her whole life, and, and, and she swims an astoundingly 75 miles. But in the end, she too loses her strength, and she too ends up giving out and drowning. And Tim Keller asked the question, is is one of the swimmers more drowned than the others? And the answer, of course, is no. In the end, it doesn't matter which one swam farther than the rest. No, 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 none of them were anywhere near the intended destination of Japan. And each one ended up equally dead. And so, too, he says, not a single person can come anywhere near the standard of a righteous heart. All are equally lost and equally condemned to perish. All are under sin. There is no one righteous, not even one. Now, that illustration, I think, effectively makes the point that no one can reach the goal of righteousness. But at the same time, I think the illustration is a little bit misleading because because the picture that Scripture paints is that if the goal is saving righteousness, then apart from Christ, no one is able even to get off the starting blocks. It's not that some make it closer to the goal than others. In fact, it's that biblically is that we all swim or run in the exact opposite direction. And it's just that some go farther away from the goal than others. You see, Scripture doesn't just say that all have fallen short, but that that all have turned away. 
The heart is by nature hardened to God's truth and his way. We're not by nature in a state of neutrality toward God. We are by nature in a state of rebellion against him. And this is why scripture says there is no one who does good, not even one. Now, someone might argue and say, well, come on, Paul, he must be, he's speaking in hyperbole here, right? Because uh, uh, he, he's just trying to make a point because the, 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 certainly there are people in the world, even unbelievers who, who do acts of kindness and who, who help others out and who, who do their part to try to make the world a better place. And all of that is true. So how can Paul say then that there is no one who does good? Well, it's because Paul is talking about a saving kind of good. He's talking about the kind of good that can fix our broken relationship with God, the kind of good that can attain the righteousness we need to gain a right standing with him. And Paul says that no one does that kind of good, not even one. Our sinful condition is universal in scope. The second feature of our sinful condition that Paul shows us in these Verses is that it is pervasive in corruption. So, so not only does this sinful condition plague every human without exception, but it, it corrupts every part of every person. In, in theological terms, uh, this is the, the doctrine of total depravity. And, and the doctrine of total depravity, as we've talked about before, does not mean that we are all as bad as we can possibly be, that we are all as, that we all do the, the most egregious kinds of evils that there are to do. That's not what it means to be totally depraved. It means instead that every aspect of our being is tainted by sin. In verses 13 to 18, Paul quotes passages that link our sinful nature to various parts of the body. So he says, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and there's no fear of God before their eyes. And notice how the, these parts of the body represent the two, the two spectrums of the human body from, the, from the, the head to the feet. And I believe this is Paul's way of showing that the, that the whole person from head to foot is corrupted by sin. Someone described it once this way. They said, if the color of sin were blue, then every aspect of us would be some shade of blue. We are all infected with a moral corruption down to our very core. The Russian poet Turgenev once said, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. And this pervasive corruption of sin doesn't just affect us as individuals. It, it then spills over into, into everything around us. In, in the words of Neil Plantinga, sin is a vandalism of shalom. And so it ravages our relationships with God and, and with, with others and with the rest of creation. It leaves families and, and communities and nations broken. We see this dimension of our sinful condition clearly in verses 15 to 17, where Paul says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace they do not know. Our sinful condition makes us vessels of violence and injury and ruin toward others. Pierre von Passen tells about a time when 
Nazi troops captured a, a Jewish rabbi and they stripped him naked and they, they beat him severely with a leather strap. And then they, they cut off the right side of his hair and they cut off the left side of his beard. And then they put his hat back on his head and they began taunting him and, and laughing at him. And they told him to preach the sermon that he was planning to, to preach on that Sabbath. And they said to him, you know, you'll never see your synagogue again because we've just burned it to the ground. So why don't you go ahead and just preach what you're going to preach. Preach it right here to us. And the man was naked and cold and shivering. And they just kept on laughing and taunting and pressing him to preach his sermon. And so finally he spoke. And this is what the Jewish rabbi said. He said, my text was to be Genesis 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image and likeness. That scene puts on display how pervasive our sinful condition is in its corruption. It vandalizes our identity as image bearers of God. And with the image of God vandalized in us, we vandalize others. Our sinful condition is pervasive in corruption. The third feature of our sinful condition, as Paul relates in these verses, is that it is theological in nature. That is to say, all sin is at its core an offense against God. In verse 18, Paul reveals the root cause behind all sin. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And, and to fear God is, is to honor him as God. It is to have a proper sense of humility and awe and reverence before him. It is to have a, a, a sober and trembling joy before his greatness that we might properly glorify him and enjoy him forever. And sin, then, is a failure and a stubborn refusal to do that, a stubborn refusal to fear God, to revere him, to honor him as God. It is the, the decentering and dethroning of God. It is a rejection of his rule over our lives. John Stott has said, sin is the revolt of the self against God, the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, he says, sin is the reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. When King David committed his acts of grievous sin and evil against Uriah and Bathsheba, he rightly recognized that even though he did great wrongs against these people, that his sin was above all a violation against God. And so he said in his prayer of confession in Psalm 51, he said, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And he's not saying with these words that, that he didn't sin against, against a people as well, he is simply acknowledging that his sin, like all sin, is chiefly Godward in nature. 
It is God who is the Holy One of the universe. It is God whose holiness is so pure and transcendent that he cannot tolerate sin. It is God who has called people into relationship with himself. It is God who has given them his laws and his instructions for how to live as his holy people. And so all sin, which is a a breaking or a transgressing of God's law, is fundamentally an affront to him as the lawgiver. As Neil Planninga put it, shalom, which, which is uh, sometimes uh, translated as peace, but it's much more than that. It, it is sort of this broad sense of wellness in every dimension of life. Shalom, he says, is God's design for creation and redemption. Sin is culpable disturbance of shalom, culpable disturbance or vandalism of these great realities and therefore an affront to their architect and builder. And it is this theological nature of sin that gives it a a greater weight and a greater seriousness than we often admit. We are so quick to dismiss sin or, or to redefine it. We, we so easily find ways to, to rationalize or to justify our sinful behavior. We, we blame others. We evade responsibility. We adopt this victim mentality to excuse ourselves and to excuse others. Menachem Begin was the prime minister of Israel from 1977 to 1983, and he was a man who had who had grown up in the midst of of Polish and then German anti-Semitism. And so he was very well acquainted with with what it is to be despised and and hated and, and marginalized and victimized. But like so many others, Begin turned his own victimhood into a campaign then of victimizing others, sort of sending his own vengeance ricocheting throughout the whole Middle East. And his hunger for vengeance played out in ruthless destruction and violence against Israel's enemies with tanks and jets and bombs. And he justified his violence because his identity as a victim made him feel entitled. And no matter what he did, he could never get enough. And this is just one example of the many ways that we evade our sinfulness. One of the the top stories in the NFL this past year has been the story of Deshaun Watson, who's the the former quarterback for the Houston Texans and the current quarterback for the Cleveland Browns. And and he's currently uh, under an 11-game suspension in the wake of multiple allegations of sexual misconduct with multiple massage therapists. And though he admits to having some of these encounters, he has maintained all along his innocence. But whatever his legal status may be, whether he's in the end determines to be legally innocent or not, whatever his legal status may be, what has been glaringly absent uh, from him throughout this whole process is any admission of wrong or any kind of language of sinful choices that he has made. We are masters at evading the seriousness of sin. We, We excuse addiction to pornography as a disease. And gang violence as a product of social context. And divorce as a matter of irreconcilable differences. And Paul reminds us here how serious and how weighty and how offensive our sin really is. 
Our sin is theological in nature. It is an affront to the Holy One. It is a revolt against the Almighty God and Judge of the universe. So these are the, the three main features of our sinful condition that Paul identifies in these verses. And again, you know, Paul has been talking a long time. He's been dwelling a long time on human sin and, and everybody's sins and Gentile sin and Jewish sin. And everybody's under God's wrath and deserving of his judgment against sin. And it's like, man, are we ever going to get to the good news? And, and we are. But we can't receive properly the good news of salvation in Christ and deliverance from our sinful condition in Christ until we, we really hear and, and feel the weight of our sinful condition, which is why Paul so labors the point. And so Paul identifies these three main features in our text about our sinful condition. It is universal in scope, it is pervasive in corruption, and it is theological in nature. But this leaves us then with a question, and that is, well, what is the remedy to our sinful condition? And like I said, Paul is going to spell out in the, the remedy in, in great and beautiful detail in the next sections of his letter, but we find at least a little preview in our text here this morning. So Paul says in verses 19 to 20, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. And let me just pause there for a minute because that's an important expression for Paul. He uses it, I think, eight or nine times throughout his letter. The works of the law. What does he mean by that? Well, he means our own efforts to attain saving righteousness through obedience to the law. And he says that no one will be declared righteous in that way, in God's sight, by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So Paul is showing us in these uh, final two verses that, that there is nothing that anyone can do to make themselves righteous in God's eyes. All of humanity is totally and hopelessly under the power of sin. In the end, he says, every mouth is silenced before God, meaning that we have nothing to say in our defense, nothing to appeal to for our own justification. Our only hope is in what God has done for us in Christ. As Martin Luther colorfully put it, he said, the main point of the law is to show us our sin, that by the knowledge thereof we may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means driven to seek grace and so come to Christ. If we try to come to God with our own works as our righteousness, then we cannot receive the righteousness that he gives freely by grace. And so we need to come to him with empty hands and silent mouths and receive. As the emperor paraded around in his imagined special robe, it was the simple statement of a child that exposed his true nakedness. The emperor has no clothes, the boy said. And like that boy in the crowd, Paul strips away our delusion. He exposes our soul's nakedness. Whatever righteousness we thought we had was an imagined righteousness. The only righteousness that counts in the end is the righteousness of Christ. 
Like the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3, many of us tend to think of ourselves as rich and healthy and not in need of anything. And Jesus says to us the same thing he said to them. He said, you do not, he said to them, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The fine garments that you thought you were wearing are non-existent. Your robes of righteousness are make-believe robes. And, and so Jesus goes on to say, I counsel you to, to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Apart from Christ, our finest robes, our best works are of absolutely no saving value. They are imagined robes that cannot cover the true nakedness of our soul. It is only in Christ that we are robed with true righteousness. It is only in Christ that we can stand clothed and unashamed before the throne of God. And so when, when he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. When the day of judgment comes, the only way to stand faultless before the throne is to be clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. Will you and will I be found in him on that day? Let's bow together. Oh, Lord, these verses show us so clearly and unequivocally that we are all, oh, Lord, under the power of sin. That on our own, left to our own devices, apart from Christ, there is no one righteous. That even our best works, oh, Lord, are imagined robes of righteousness that we all on our own stand as naked sinners before the throne of God. And the only possible way to be counted as righteous in your eyes is to be clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. O oh Lord, I pray as you come before your throne in this time of silent prayer and response to show us, O oh Lord, the ways that we have perhaps dismissed or excused or justified or rationalized or diminished the seriousness of our sin. And if we have not yet received Christ in true faith to be clothed with his perfect righteousness, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, O oh Lord, we would be clothed right now in this moment. And if we have, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us a deepened appreciation and gratitude and wonder over what you have done for us in Christ. Oh Lord, hear our silent prayers this morning.
Oh, Lord, help us to see ourselves as we really are. And apart from you, we are hopelessly lost. Sinners corrupted through and through and deserving of your wrath and condemnation. And it's in Christ alone that we have hope for deliverance and to stand faultless before your throne. For our hope, O Lord, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And we dare not trust the sweetest frame, but a holy lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. O Lord, may we stand on that rock this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.